0: Hello and welcome to SDP Talks, a series of conversations with politicians, academics, authors, and public intellectuals. I'm William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party. Today, my guest is Frank Furedi, the academic and emeritus professor of sociology at the University of Kent. In this conversation, Frank talks about his new book, Why Borders Matter, and a variety of related cultural and social phenomena such as the fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic on open borders, the loss of a unifying culture, and the reception of the establishment to the Black Lives Matter movement. Enjoy the show. So it's a pleasure to invite to SDP Talks Professor of Sociology, Political Thinker and Author, Dr. Frank Furedi. Welcome, Frank. Pleasure. Thank you. I've got a number of your books on my bookshelves, uh, but you've produced a new one called uh, Why Borders Matter. So the first question is why this book and why now? Well, it,
1: it's a book that I never intended to write, but uh, what happened, there were a series of accidents. I was asked to give a talk in Holland to the Philosophy uh, Society there on borders. The other year, they had a year, they a summer conference. And before I gave the talk, I was fairly sure that. I would be arguing for a very generous open border kind of ideal, mainly because I've always presumed in in favor of the free movement of people. Mm. And myself, I myself was a a migrant who fled Hungary into uh, Austria, then eventually ended up in Canada and then England. Mm. Um, But then what happened was that when I kind of began to study the subject, I realized that there was this incredible, uh, sort of movement afoot particularly amongst the intelligentsia but also amongst all the cultural institutions mm. which regarded borders as somehow inherently uh, discriminatory and oppressive and exploitative and everybody was saying we need open borders and open borders had this kind of casual promiscuous attitude that we don't want any borders the borders are really bad um, you have all these movements with the name open borders in them, you know, like clans for open borders, mm. doctors for open borders, sex workers for open borders. I, I counted about 60 of these different movements. Yeah. And then I began to realize that actually we live in a world where hostility to the borders and boundaries permeates society in relation to everything. So it's not just national borders, but the borders between men and women, between children and and uh, adults between animals and human beings all these boundaries are now being called into question and i felt that uh, the logic of that is to give up on any form of moral discrimination any kind of distinction which could be uh, horrifying in a sense for the future of our society and for our civilization because we essentially give up on any kind of signposts uh, that give meaning to our existence
0: yeah It's very interesting in your book that you um, you link the sort of uh, loss in confidence, particularly in the West, with um, the you know to assert uh, say a national border, with the sort of decline in um, the ability to judge things. And I thought that was an interesting observation. How would you how would you um, explain the root of that?
1: Well, I think the the foundation on which all this hostility to borders and boundaries exists is Ultimately, on, on the question of judgment, I think that in the Anglo-American world in particular, uh, we regard uh, the making of judgment as somehow inherently bad. You know, that we sh- you know, We're always told that we shouldn't tell our children to be judgmental. Yeah. We learn that from parents and from schools, that being judgmental is somehow uh, oppressive. And instead of being judgmental, children are told, that the thing you really got to value is non-judgmentalism, you know, where you avoid making distinctions between what you think is right and wrong or good and bad. Yeah. And if we actually genuinely live according to this ethos, it would mean that you and I could not have a conversation because the minute I have a serious conversation with you, I'm judging you and yeah. you're judging me. I mean, that's part and parcel of a dialogue. You're probably saying to yourself, that's good. That's a really stupid remark. You know and you know our conversation is built around a continuous act of judgment and moral judgment as well and I think that what has happened is that our culture has given up on judgment mm. uh, it, because I think we're scared and we fear uh, making judgments making clear distinctions and mm. instead we've kind of opted to essentially say well there is no such thing as right and wrong. This is what you get in universities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, most, well, of course, that's wrong because there is such a thing as right and wrong. And part of the uh, uh, excitement of intellectual you know, sort of work is to find out what is right and what is wrong. And that's been essential to our public life.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think these are all really, really interesting observations because um, when you look into it with any detail at all, Uh, some of these ideas are completely flaky. I mean, the idea, I mean, if you, for instance, if you, if you get rid of the idea of of judgment, um, you really can't do any philosophy, for instance, you can't make any um, assessments, you can't um, categorize or, you know, do any taxonomies. You can certainly, you couldn't do any uh, evaluations of hierarchy in the sense that I think that's a better idea than that. So, it's it's it really doesn't work um i mean i th- i you you talk about sincerity there i think i wonder whether the proponents of of say open borders in, in in relation to nation states are really genuine uh in what they say i mean you you had a fair enough you have you in britain you had a new labor you had a sort of decaffeinated type of open border policy you know just very high levels of immigration but if you if you take people at their word and you say well let's get rid of national borders a whole series of things unravel like the social contract like the idea that you have citizenship um do, do you think those are, are there a risk with this this ideology
1: they are i think there are two types of open borders adv- advocates those who really believe it mm. and have never actually uh worked out its implications and those who essentially have it's a kind of performance where they're basically saying we're so cosmopolitan we're not like you guys are little englanders we are not nostalgic about the past so we're above it all Mm. and they're in many sense the most insidious section of our cultural establishment because what they're doing in a sense is they're using the uh, uh, open borders argument Mm. to basically undermine the British way of life or a particular national way of life.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's a line in your book where, you, where the, the people, the advocates, the very privileged advocates of open borders are, are described as the greatest hypocrites. And I think that there's a lot in that. I mean, if you advocate, as we do, a sort of centre-left approach to economics, you've got to be concerned with low pay. You must be, you cannot ignore that for fellow citizens, it's nonsense and therefore to have an open border policy simply holds uh, the the feet to the flames of people on low pay, and yet all the people that are really, really keen on these ideas are actually completely insulated from them.
1: Yes, and and it's not an accident that people who are hostile to borders are also very uh, skeptical of the moral status of citizens, Yeah, because they argue that there's something inherently wrong between making a distinction between somebody a citizen of a nation and somebody who's just arrived two minutes ago, that we should all be treating everybody the same kind of a way. And you got this phony cosmopolitanism that says, oh, we're, we're so cosmopolitan. Yeah. We regard every human being the same, but you, know, you and I know that we regard our own family very differently than our neighbor. We regard our, our own neighbor very differently than somebody that lives 500 miles away. Yeah, and, and, and those are very real, moral and human distinctions that we make, which cannot be eroded just by saying that we're all the same.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's also very, it's just highly utopian. In a sense, we've seen all this before with previous utopian mo, uh, movements, which go back through history, but um, it doesn't survive contact in the real world. I mean, to say, to suggest that, um, you know, no national frontiers or borders are important sort of, it, it really does fall into utopian fantasy world. Um, it, it sort of implies a different world than, than one we really live in, which is where competition and, I mean, every bit of turf is contested. The idea that suddenly we can, um, we can open up and have no national borders, as I say, uh, presupposes that you can govern that in some way. I mean, certainly, I don't think one of my principal objections to this um is that you just can't operate a democracy uh without a a nation state i think there's a line in our manifesto the new declaration where we say that the um the nation states the upper limit of democracy and i i always wonder when open borders zealots talk about open borders what, what society what demos are they talking about well that's that's a very good point
1: because they don't take the demos particularly seriously and they don't realize that uh, from, from the beginning of, of, of the history of democracy, democracy mm-hmm. itself was always spatially bound. Yeah. You know, citizenship was always bounded in a particular territory. And even in ancient Greek and Athens, where democracy was born, the, the, the idea of democracy was intertwined with the city wall. The city wall was seen as, in some uh, shape or form, symbolized a symbol of democracy. And they very much, very clearly understood that uh, public debate and discussion and responsibility and accountability required a boundedness of some form. And, and for that reason, nation state is the, is the is the absolute largest
0: territory within which democracy can exist. I think that's very fair, and I, I I'm very keen on Epicurus. And there's a line in Epicurus where he when he's talking about security, and he links uh, security to Uh, to the city wall directly it's one of his aphorisms Um, so yeah i mean i i think the idea of frontiers and boundaries in uh organized societies are ubiquitous pretty much and i think the idea that you can you can just get rid of it what's your take frank on the on the effect of the pandemic on open borderism because hasn't the pandemic um uh, resulted in the assertion of the reality of, of the need for some borders. I mean, even, even within states, I mean, a state like Australia, for instance, presently has a border between uh, New South Wales and, and Victoria. Um, so the pandemic is, is, I would say, is an, an example of something where an idea maybe utopian is just getting mugged by reality.
1: Yeah, I mean, the pandemic has been a reality check in, in a number of ways. Uh, it has brought to the surface rivalries uh, about the uh, Online experience, Mm. where uh, the internet, which is meant to be borderless entirely, and you know, and it should be, Mm. is now being uh, sort of uh, cut up uh, by China, by the United States. That they're all trying to control bits of it and not allow each other to influence uh, the online experience. You have economic reality kicking in, and economic nationalism Mm. uh, is becoming much more pronounced over the last six or seven months and as you say I think that uh, you now have a a much greater understanding that you do need to uh, use your uh, borders to protect yourself uh, for another reason than to ensure that public health issues don't get out of control and uh, I've got a friend in Australia who tells me he couldn't believe that I've been able to go to Italy Mm. because as he says you cannot travel from Sydney to Melbourne it's just impossible because of the intense policing of the of the border between new south wales and and victoria that's true, I think those things, but most important of all, paradoxically, is that the people uh, who are so hostile to borders in the in the pandemics have really rediscovered the virtues of personal boundaries yes, and they tend to be the ones that love the lockout, they don't want to go out you know mm. they want to w- work at home, they're the ones. Uh, that uh, you know, almost uh, sell, uh, almost kind of glorify safe spaces mm. and, and and regard the, uh, regard the you know their home as a, as this kind of sacred territory that nobody must cross and there's a kind of paradox here that uh, all of a sudden you know they they have uh, sort of uh, brought, brought in the idea of a quarantine as not a necessity
0: mm. but as but as absolutely a, a positive development in their lives yeah i think the i think your observations about the paradoxes uh, of where we are uh, are some of the strongest parts of the book um, as you say you've got a paradox where open border zealots would argue for for open borders but then demand safe spaces in a, a micro space in the university uh, you know the the people that are arguing have, have constantly argued for or have attacked the idea of uh, of moral judgment that preach sort of moral uh, indifference uh, at the same time. And not indifferent if you speak, um, if you make utterances that not like. I mean, they're they're extremely harsh on anyone that has a different viewpoint to them. And so you've you've, um, highlighted some really interesting ideas where almost you get rid of the macro border and you import a whole load of tiny little micro ones, yeah? Yeah,
1: and, and in many respects, they're far more ruthless and far more uh, authoritarian in terms of their uh, vision of where the bo- where the boundaries should be, than mm. the police and, and 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 the army of of different nation states. Most governments are reasonably flexible, mm. and they make exceptions very often. They often make judgment calls about mm. allowing certain types of people in in emergencies. So they're, they you know, they're, there's a kind of nuanced approach that most uh, good governments have. Whereas if you look at the way they police culture at mm. the moment, I mean, there's a kind of uh, almost totalitarian imperative that, you know, if you're a white man, mm. you know, you know, you mustn't write about a black character in a novel because that's cultural appropriation. Yes. If you're, if you're Jewish, you cannot talk, you know, pretend and write about a Christian person. And I mean, I mean everything food is being policed. So if you, if you happen to, basically uh, be an English cook and you're making a Chinese meal that's immediately denounced on Twitter as an example of cultural appropriation. So the policing of cultural borders is, if anything, comparable to the Spanish Inquisition. I mean, that's the time when they used to really you know, kind of you know, watch these things, you know, in a, in a, with a kind of totalitarian rigor.
0: Yeah. And I, just at the time when you're arguing for greater international sort of open borders, you're you're, you're absolutely hammering um, uh, individual, I would call it just the space for society, for individuals in society to, to use their discretion. I think that's what we've lost. I think we've lost um, a sense of discretion, a sense of personal discretion. We've also lost uh, a sort of societal ambiguity. There's a sense where, you know, common sense could, could prevail or people could sort of muddle along, but instead now you have a whole series of prescriptive, micro rules and policing to tell us what to do is if we've lost uh, would you say we've lost the art of of just muddling along
1: well that's one of the reasons why i wrote the book because it's the the, uh, it's, the book is called why borders matters but then it goes on and says and, and why humanity must re- relearn the art of drawing lines and mm. a very good example of what you're talking about is the term common sense mm. because if you look at the way that uh, yeah, on Netflix or on in the elite institutions. Mm. Uh, the term common sense is discussed. It, it always has this, uh, you know, sort of sense of, oh, common sense is so petty and it's bound yeah. to be wrong. Common sense is the sense of common people who are very simple-minded. They don't understand the complexities of a global world. Yes. And we need to have yeah. much, you know, um, some kind of different kind of uh, expert or intellectual-led input to to solve the problem of people who are following their common sense because it's likely to have negative consequences. So mm-hmm. muddling along, using yeah. discretion, yeah. which is really essential because that's the way that informal life is conducted between normal human beings. Yeah. It's not seen as something that you've got to be careful.
0: It, it's not coming with a health warning. Yes. Just before we move on, just to stay on the subject of but boundaries finally I think one other observation which I think is well put and well made in the book is that the boundaries that are subject to deconstruction as part of this project um, are all old ones are all traditional ones Uh, so that you know you're you're getting rid of basically some of the foundations you know I've argued and I think it's right that the um, progressive project is a project of deconstruction you're getting rid of foundations like religion and, and family life nation-states, so on, private life, um, getting rid of the idea of biological sex, um, and it's deliberate. But you're, all of the things you're getting rid of um, are, are traditional and historically-based and culturally-rooted, and you're replacing them with a load of things that are pretty new and are untried. It's not clear that they're going to work.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's essentially a negative project that is deeply hostile to any anything that's organic to our experience as human beings. So all the signposts that are based on human experience yeah. because they've given meaning to people's lives over the generations
2: mm.
1: are seen as negative precisely for that reason that they go back and it's, they go back to the bad old days. So the hostility to borders is it's another way of being hostile to the web of meaning mm. uh, that has given, uh, 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 Kind of clarity to our everyday life for a very very long time. That's something we want to leave behind. Mm. What you have as a replacement, and it's not really a replacement, because it's much more negative than than constructive. Mm. What you've got as a replacement is a kind of invented, fragile, provisional, made it up, make it up as you go along kind of thing. That's why you'll find that very often, the language and the uh, the new identities that are constructed. Mm. Are, are are inherently unstable mm. and are, are are continuously fragmenting and, and falling apart so you see so you kind of have this situation where ultimately where this leads to is not just uh, the construction of these artificial safe spaces mm. but you end up with this obsession about your personal boundaries it's almost like what you what you want to create is this kind of you know boundary around your persona that you know mm. that uh, you that protects you from unwanted attention, from people touching you, from people coming too close to you. It's it's a kind of very privatized, atomized alternative atomized. That, that doesn't really have any kind of capacity to become generalizable.
0: Yes. Well I think the I think atomization is, is where we're at and I think the risk with it is that it's and it's very clear, it's quite obvious what the risk is, that it, there's just no central cultural core to unite us, and unless you have the, uh, unless you can unite people behind um, uh, a sense of mutual obligation or solidarity, literally things fall apart. And, and I know you've written, not in this book, but in the past, a lot about the, the gradual decline of what we might call universal values, um, You know, the, the dec- gradual unpicking of sort of moral consensus and so on. I think John Gray uh, has referred to it as a sort of loss of the common life. Um, uh, mm. That's how he describes it. So, um, if that's where we're headed, what, what do you think the consequences are of, of unpicking that?
1: The thing that really concerns me is that uh, this leads, this kind of creates a dynamic whereby everyday life becomes increasingly fragmented and polarised. Mm. Where uh, instead of having a what, what I call a public language that can appeal to all, we have these parallel narratives mm. uh, that are that cannot connect with one another because the reason why they have parallel na- narratives is because they are self-referential and are not interested in communicating with people who aren't part of that kind of bubble. So you have that. But I think my main concern, you know, and this is something that is generally not recognized by politicians or people you know, who are otherwise quite sensible,
2: mm.
1: is that in the end, you know, the, 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 the big threat that we faced with is the impact of this on children and on young people mm. because i think that if you have children who are not who are not being given any clear guidance whose who, who signposts yeah. are ripped apart who are told to almost define for themselves what is the world they want to live in mm. so that's what we're telling them very often you have people for example who argue oh i'm such a progressive parent that I'd, I refuse to tell my child whether they're a girl or a boy. Let them decide. That's you think that you're being you know, so sensitive and open-minded, but what you're doing is you're laying the burden of socialization upon a seven or an eight-year-old child, which is just an impossible thing to do. So when children are not given any, any kind of clear guidance like that, when they do grow up, they do become relatively disoriented and confused and we're seeing the consequences of some of that being played out today in universities and in other uh, domains of everyday life.
0: I think that's right, I think it's lethal, I think this is, this experiment is, um, the consequences could be absolutely huge to remove, I mean you say in the book again you know part of a boundary is knowing that you're inside it or and that others are outside it Um, and that enables people to know where they are I mean, as an, as an adult, you might decide, well, I want to go and live somewhere else, or I want to think in a different way. But at least as you're growing up, you should have some sort of guardrail. And again, uh, uh, another writer I like um, uh, from the States has talked a lot about um, the, the deliberate removal of, um, of guardrails, as he says. You know, and, and actually, the only people that could argue for that are the people that feel they don't need them. But yes. actually, every, you know, a lot of people need them. And, and moreover, it isn't just simply that
1: we need them, but um, you know, there's nothing wrong for young people to kick up against the boundaries that have been set for them.
2: Mm. Because
1: that's, in fact, how they develop. You know, that's how you gain your sense of independence. You kind of test the boundaries. I mean, most children do that all the time.
2: Mm.
1: And that's a normal way of, of developing. But if the boundaries have been removed, and all you have left is an open door to kick against, mm. then the, that kind of creative process of development that occurs in the interaction of generations, mm. which you learn who you are, mm. and you, you learn about your strengths and your weaknesses, all that is compromised. Yeah. And you
0: end up feeling weak and fragile and vulnerable. But the, even at the micro level of the family, a fam, family life which has boundaries and has some rules, I mean, children do thrive, in that environment, and the evidence is in. It's not a question. I mean, we know that.
1: Yeah, and I think that to be genuinely flexible, you got to have boundaries. People don't realize that People think, "Oh, I'm so flexible. I have no boundaries." Mm-hmm. But the only way you can be really flexible is if there's a firm foundation from which you can be flexible from. Mm-hmm. Because uh, otherwise, you're just floating in the air, rather than being flexible. You're not really reacting, and you're not really responding yeah but really adapting to new circumstances you've just more or less given up on having a direction that you want to move towards and you've given up on your children you know sort of uh, being guided uh in this journey instead you just say well we'll see you at the other end
0: yeah or, or even at the, the to the extent of a parent or parents actually um properly guiding, morally guiding a child now is seen as odd. I mean, I think we're in a very dangerous place culturally. And I think, um, you know, certainly people with sort of slightly conser- socially conservative attitudes have basically been losing the cultural war for probably 30, 40 years. Well, we could, you could argue 100 years, but certainly for a long time. And I think there are major consequences to that. Uh, one, one recent, obviously, um, recent uh, major event which has illustrated this, is the BLM movement and the events in the States uh, sort of importing this hyper-racialized politics into the UK. And what we've found in the Social Democrats, I mean, we've, we've analyzed BLM's project as we would any project and found actually a lot of it wanting, and we've not been slow to criticize it. The odd thing, Frank, is that we, very, very few people and institutions have been willing to, A, scrutinize it properly, and B, criticize it. Why do you think that is? Well, I think um,
1: you, you raise what is the most important issue of our times, which is the fact that, you know, so you, you talk about, you know, people lose our side, losing the culture war. Mm. I think this has been going on for a very long time. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, equivocation, mm. a lot of moral cowardice. Yeah. Uh, Which I think, um, you know, infects even people who call themselves conservative or who call themselves genuine liberal or, you know, kind of old school socialists. you know, Mm -hmm. who actually, you know, in their heart of hearts, know what's going on. They really understand what is at stake and they're either self-censoring or they're struggling to find a voice. That's what I'm I'm finding. And I think that uh, you find that within the establishment. There is no appetite for this. I mean, even, even the conservative government, who said that they would fight back on this front, are conspicuously silent, um, you know, sort of at the moment. And I've talked to some of their people, and they're, you know, they, they really remind me of the, that, that Superman comic where, you know, sort of um, they kind of come across as Clark Kent. Yeah, Most of the time, you know, 99.9%. And occasionally they go on the phone booth to, to rip off their, you know, sort of their clothes to kind of tell the world that we are Superman and then disappear. And I think that this is a, this is a tragedy. And if I, that's the, one of the reasons why I wrote the book, because we need to get more people to stand up and say, for example, that the BLM is not really about uh, fighting racism. Mm. If you look at their website. Their website argues against uh, the normal family form. They think that heterosexuality is bizarre and old-fashioned. I mean, all their views across the board are, are, are ones that are antithetical yeah. to the conduct of a, of a civilized moral order. And people just, you know, almost kind of in a self-loathing way, either keep quiet or they kind of
0: applaud them, you know, sort of. And, oh. and, it's thoroughly anti-Western, it's quite clear. I mean, it, it, the, the, I, I mean, uh, apart from the fact that it's, it's claimed aim of making life better for Black people in the United States is absolutely, there, there's no way their program's gonna do that. And the rest of it is just um, uh, an attempt, I think, to weaken the United States and the West, it's quite clear. And if you don't realize that, you haven't spent any time looking at it carefully.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's more than anti-Western. It's also anti-civilizational. I mean, it's anti-humanist in a very fundamental sense, because if you look at the values that they uh, advocate and values that they hate, mm. they're they, the kind of values they dislike are the ones that are the accomplishment of human civilization over the centuries—not just of the West, but of mm. China, you know, a whole whole of other places where you where you realize that there's a relationship between work and consequence that. Uh, mm. You know, mm. human beings need to take responsibility for the consequences of their action and all those all these values which they criticize and they call white mm. are not just white values or western values. they are they are the the important gains that humanity has made since you know over the two, last two three thousand years and what they propose instead is a very slothful you know sort of anti-civilizational kind of ideal where you essentially you know, sort of give up on the future, you give up on the past. Mm. And you basically want to sit around and, 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 and uh, revel in your identity and, and, and uh, expect that you will be rewarded for doing nothing uh, mm. by millions of guilty Western yeah.
0: people. Well, they're, cert- they're certainly working on that and, th- and they appear to be succeeding. I mean, uh, just in terms of the outlook to finish, um, I'm very concerned that what happens in the States we end up importing. And I'm very concerned about the states anyway. Um, Just uh, without a unifying culture, without some sort of unifying culture to bring those people together, I think there is a risk, there's got to be a risk of greater atomization. And I think, whether I would describe it as a sort of retreat into, as you say, private boundaries, but I would describe it as a series of pockets, um, sort of cultural pockets, where people will just basically... Conduct a micro life inside their own communities, but the idea of a sort of common unifying culture uh, may be in the process of being lost. Do you think that's too bleak, or do you think that's possible?
1: Well, I think that's very realistic. I think I think we've already uh, imported the American uh, kind of uh, anti-cultural trends. Particularly, if you watch the BBC, watch the, you know the the, the cinema, on the media. If you read many of the mainstream newspapers, they've changed tremendously mm. the last couple of years and the new generation of media operatives and reporters are often uh, have often imbibed this you know because they're products of the same universities the same yeah. uh, intellectual culture as their american peers are so there's already that problem and i think that you know under those circumstances you know um, there's little point in, in in kind of focusing on the bleak dimensions of it what we need to focus on is how we reach out and create a kind of uh, a, a sensibility that's, that kind of shows people that there can be a common culture, that it's a common coming together, mm. uh, uh, creating a you know, something that binds us together is something that is really important for all of us. Because mm. I think there's an appetite for that. But we have to somehow uh, be a little bit more aggressive than we are at the moment and, and not really be embarrassed and, and fear about being shouted down or being called homophobic or transphobic or you know, xenophobic you know, and just stand our ground and come up with eloquent coherent arguments that can appeal to particularly young people.
0: I think the vocabulary is very, very important. And I think one of the problems, you talk about the Tories lack of, I think it is moral cowardice. I think they parade as social conservatives towards elections. And then after they've banked people's votes, surprise, surprise, they're just as weak and useless as they always were, because they are really liberals. I mean, economic liberals primarily, but social liberals as a second order thing. Um, So part of my argument for arguing for a a political vehicle is that I don't think people uh, who are, I agree with you, Frank, I think actually the, the, the mainstream hinterland population does not go along with this and is looking for a voice. And I think the... I, what I object to is for them having to vote for a series of parties that don't reflect their culture. And uh, we, you know, we, we, and it's going to take a long time, but we mean to try and change that. Uh, but you know, we're a small party, but we're growing. And it does prove that there is a, um, an appetite if you convene that. You know, if you, at least you put it out, then it's there for people to say, well, I'll take that option.
1: Well, I mean, I really hope you succeed. Because That's very kind. we need... Um, we need people like you and, and your colleagues to uh, sort of make greater headway mm. and we need somehow to kind of bring all kinds of people together uh, because at the end of the day, the, the, the issues are at stake are so important that petty differences over taxation or this mm. policy or that pale into insignificance compared to the big issues that we've been discussing. And that, I think that that's the way we've got to think of it, that there, there are these very important issues mm. that affect all of us because uh, public life as such, democracy as such, the meaning of citizenship as such, mm. ultimately uh, is founded upon a common cultural uh, sort of identity that we have, that, that we kind of brought, kind of constructed together. And we do need to give the sense of nationhood some kind of 21st century clarity not because you know we're kind of uh, obsessive nationalists but because there's some kind of community there is we want to be part of and want to have uh, that sense of communalism that solidarity to, to mean something to people and more most importantly there's a possibility for them to experience as well
0: i agree yeah. and it's thank you very much it's kind of you to say that i think i think people have a, a natural human need for solidarity and, and naturally, they do want to share among their fellow citizens. I think there's, a, there's an impetus. There's a feeling that you want to do that. Um, and I think the hyper-individualization that we've had over a long time, um, I think people have had enough of it. And I think we're just going to do our best to try and challenge the, the bigger parties and grow and see what we can do. But listen, thanks very much. It's been wonderful. Um, I thoroughly recommend the book, which is Why Borders Matter. Uh, published by Routledge. Uh, so thank you very much, uh, Dr. Frank Fradey. Thank you. Pleasure. Nice talking to you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of STP Talks, a series of conversations with politicians, academics, authors, and public intellectuals. If you'd like to be updated when new episodes of STP Talks go live, make sure to subscribe or follow us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you're interested in learning more about the Social Democratic Party, do make sure to head over to our website at sdp.org.uk. Thanks for listening.